Ideas in STEM Ed is a production of the Idea Engineering Student Center at UC San Diego, which works to promote community, success, and inclusion at all levels. My name is Darren Lapomi, Professor of Nanoengineering and Chemical Engineering and Faculty Director of the Idea Center. The purpose of this podcast is to provide a forum for the discussion of innovative and inclusive approaches to teaching and mentoring, and to support the personal and academic flourishing and success of students in science and engineering. To learn more about the Idea Center, visit jacobschool.ucsd.edu front idea. When I was a grad student, I was really stressed out 50% of the time. At one point, I had a lot of cardiac arrhythmias. After an extensive workup, including an echocardiogram, a cardiac MRI, and a mobile EKG monitor I had to wear for 24 hours a day for 28 days, they told me that I needed to sleep more and try to relax. My primary care doctor, who had been an anxiety researcher's best advice was to, quote, smell the roses easier said than done. It's with that backdrop that I'm excited to announce today's guest. I'm speaking today with Dr. Roy Arjun, cardiologist at the University of Pennsylvania Medical Center. I've known Roy for about 18 years since he was a sophomore at Boston University in biomedical engineering. I was his undergraduate lab TA in the evening section, which I think was something like 6 to 9 p.m. twice a week. Roy did his medical degree at Boston University as well, his residency at Boston Medical Center. Let me try to get my wife to take it. I'm sorry. He saw me in the office and ran inside. Say hi to my friend Darren. No. No. I'm sorry. I may have my wife take him, and then I'll be right back. <laughs> so, All right. <laughs> but then he's doing work, okay? I don't want to do work. Roy did his medical degree at Boston University as well, his residency at Boston Medical Center, a research fellowship at MIT, and a cardiology fellowship at Yale New Haven Hospital. Roy, thank you very much for coming on the program. Thanks for having me, Darren. Yeah, I... I probably would have made it through the medical school part without you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I'm not sure that's true, but I, I, I'll take any, <laughs> any part of your success that I can. So what led to your interest in medicine? So I, I actually spend most of my life trying to avoid going into medicine. So my, like most Indian parents, my parents wanted me to do medicine or engineering or law and I, I wanted to be a ghostbuster. That obviously didn't work out because I found out later I was afraid of ghosts. So <laughs> when I, I wound up going to college, I applied for biomedical engineering because I thought it was kind of a cool area that was starting out. I was always pretty good at math, and I thought it was a nice way to not just do straight math. Um, and from there, when I finished biomedical engineering, um, I didn't really know where I was going to go next. I, I didn't really want to work in an office. I didn't really, I knew I had to go do some kind of grad school. Um, and the, the people part of medicine appealed to me a lot. So that kind of drove me towards medicine because I kind of needed to do something and I didn't like everything else. And I really liked people. So. <laughs> 
So, is that is that unusual? Most engineers are not uh, necessarily people who uh, I mean yeah, they like I, people, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, I don't think I did, I think the the prototypical engineer is kind of like is into their work and doesn't really like to socialize. I don't think that's how most of my friends were when I was in college. And a lot of, I was friends with a lot of outgoing engineers. Um, and I think it's ultimately how you want to decide how the rest of your life is going to be. Like I, I meet new people every single day um, and I hear their life story. And I think all of that is fascinating. Uh, I don't think I could have been in an office seeing the same like 20 people every single day for the rest of my life. I, that I don't think that would have worked for me. Um, but there's a lot of people that may work out just fine for. What is a cardiologist? So a cardiologist is effectively a, a heart doctor. Um, we, we do three years of internal medicine training. So it's like kind of general medicine. Um, and then three years of medical cardiology fellowship. So I think a common uh, mistake is people think we do surgeries. We don't cut up anybody's chest or anything like that. That's cardiothoracic surgery. Um, there's subspecialties within cardiology. So I do imaging stuff, um, specifically echocardiography and nuclear cardiology. Um, but there are other cardiologists who will do interventional. Those, those, those are the cardiologists that will put in stents if people have heart attacks. They're cardiologists that manage abnormal heart rhythms, kind of similar to what you may have had. Um, and there's cardiologists who manage heart failure. So those are the three big um, kind of subgroups of cardiologists, but none of us will cut up anybody's chest. Some of them, some of us are more procedural than others, but everything would be effectively like minimally invasive through the leg or neck or something like that. Mm -hmm. Just like, I think that some people think that a neurologist is the same thing as a, as a brain surgeon. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think some people get disappointed too. They're like, Oh, do you do, you do heart surgery? It's like, no, I take pictures though of the heart. <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't disappoint you because you don't, you're not down for the, the wet aspects of medicine. If I remember correctly, <laughs> I, there are parts of the wet aspect that I don't like, uh, like pulmonologies, lung doctors, they do stuff coming out of your lungs are not pleasant gastroenterology or GI tract doctors, stuff coming up and down, not my cup of tea. Blood was never really something I cared that much about. So it kind of fits nicely with what I decided to do because there is sometimes a lot of blood. <laughs> so as somebody with training in biomedical engineer, what uh, do you know or appreciate about the function of the cardiovascular system that the median cardiologist might not? I think, I think at, at this point, you know, I'm probably as good as most other good cardiologists, but I think the, you mean the other ones are as good as, as you, as good as me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there, there are a lot, particularly, particularly at Penn there, everybody here is just geniuses. So I think compared to all of them, I don't think any of them know any less than I do even though they don't have an engineering background, most of them. Um, I think the big difference is coming into cardiology fellowship. I think it made a huge difference. Um, I think having an engineering background sort of hinders you going into medical school because it's just like a, at least when 
I did it. I never really memorized a lot of stuff going through college. A lot of it was kind of learning the concepts of stuff and figuring your way through. I think that's how a lot of engineering is. Um, and then when you get to medical school and test questions are literally like, what's, what's the fifth word on the 872nd page? It, it, it kind of threw me for a loop. Um, so the, the first exam I had was pretty rough. And then I kind of realized this is a different ball game than what I was used to. Um, Didn't you have a, did you have a taste of that? Like studying for the MCAT? I did. I mean, I think standardized testing is one thing. I never really had big issues with standardized testing. Um, I, I think the amount, so when I started medical school, what they told me on the very first day was it was going to be like, you're going to be given information through a fire hose. And everybody thought it was really funny then, but it is a hundred percent true. Um, you just have to learn so much so fast. Um, and I don't think, I don't think I was quite prepared for that from engineering. Um, and a lot of the beginning of, uh, medical school is a lot of basic science stuff. So I think the beginning part, you know, unless you do a lot more basic science than I think we did in our engineering curriculum. I mean, I, I did orgo and bio and all of that, but that was like basic pre-med stuff. I, I think it, it sort of hurt me at the beginning. Um, but once I kind of adjusted to things, it was fine. Um, and then once I got into internal medicine, I think that's where I kind of the cardiology thing really started to pique my interest because I found that, you know, every, everything in cardiology is either electricity, flow, or solid mechanics, right? It's, it's literally those three things dictate everything in my world. Um, and I had all that stuff for four years and I had spent four years getting pretty good at it. Um, so when I, when I got to medicine and they were like quiz me on all this stuff, I was like, Oh, this makes 100% intuitive sense. Why this is the answer to something. Um, so that's what kind of led me to cardiology. And once I got into cardiology, when you get into the nitty gritty of things, whether it's heart failure or electrophysiology or interventional, it's really those three things that still are the fundamental um, principles that guide it all. Um, so it was very easy for me to understand all those concepts and apply it to patients on a day-to-day basis. So I think I, what I lost going into medical school, I gained like a thousand fold when I, start, when I started medicine and going into cardiology. How much of medical school have you retained? I think... A lot of the basic science stuff, I haven't, <laughs> but you'd be, you'd be surprised. Like the, I, particularly because I went into internal medicine. So general medicine, you go, you go through a lot of the stuff you learn in medical school. Um, it's a little bit different if you go into a surgical specialty or um, like ENT or ophthalmology or anesthesia. I think it's a little bit different. But med- general medicine is everything you do in medical school. That's what they, that's what medical school is. So I did that for three years and I did cardiology. So I would say 75%, 25%, I think is useless now, but <laughs> 75% is still, I think, fairly. I think it's, it's applicable too if you want to be a good overall doctor. Like I still, I still pride myself on being able to do non cardiology 
stuff. Like I take care of patients in the ICU who nowadays are more complicated than just they had a heart attack or they have heart failure. You know, they, they can have any, any organ could be messed up in the ICU. So I'm still proud of the fact that I can still take care of all those patients and sort of know what I'm doing. Um, or, but I know the basis for all of that is from medical school and general medicine. What did you learn about yourself, um, studying and retaining information? What is, what is a good strategy when you're drinking from a fire hose of information? <laughs> is it a matter of seeing it again, three years later when you're, when your uh, career depends on it or, or is there a, another, another way to do, think about it? I mean, I, and as far as like how I study that kind of, how, how you studied, how you think you're able to retain it. I mean, it's, a, that it's, it's surprising to me. I mean, how much 75% of the information when you drink it from a fire hose yeah. and it's coming, <laughs> it's coming fast and furious. And many years later, you know, right. it's, you still have it. I think, uh, a ton of it is repetition because a lot of the stuff you see over and over on different tests or in different books or in, you know, even now you'll see it in different patients and you just go like refresh it real quick and it all comes back. Um, I mean, when I, when I was studying, I was always pretty good at if I read something once or twice, as long as there was something on the test, like multiple choice tests, I would do well because I could, it would all come back once I saw the words. Um, so I, I was never, uh, I never really did note cards and all that stuff. I would just read the stuff like five times um, and like highlight and underline and say it over my head like a hundred times. And eventually it would just stick. Um, but I think from medical school till now, uh, the stuff that you see over and over, particularly the stuff that you remember like getting wrong in the past just stays with you after you get it wrong too. So like, I still remember test questions that I got wrong that I know the answer to now. <laughs> <laughs> to, to what extent does curiosity um, aid in uh, retrieval and, uh, and recall? I mean, I think if you're, if you're not interested in a topic um, and curious about learning more about it, then I think it becomes a miserable experience. Um, cause I, I know there are parts of medicine that aren't interesting to me at all. Um, and because I don't have that, like curiosity to know more about it, those are actually the, the areas that I have to like read about again, uh, to know what's really going on. The, the stuff that I still maintain an interest in, I remember all of it. Mm -hmm. Um, it's the, like I've told you, hematology oncology, I think was very rote memorization, and because of that, I just, I just never could yeah. get interested in it. And because of that, I, now I don't know a whole lot of hematology and oncology. That's uh, what, what interests me about people who know a lot of stuff. I was listening to an, to an interview with Ken Jennings, the, uh, the yeah. Jeopardy, the original like Jeopardy long running champion who won, I don't know, however many games in a row. And people ask like, you must have a wonderful memory. And he said, no, I'm just curious about a lot of things. And then it makes the memorization a lot easier and you don't even really view it as memorization. So it's, it's interesting. 
uh, to, to hear you say that. Of course, an engineering education, as you mentioned, is quite different in terms of, you know, maybe concepts and problem solving versus like facts and problem solving. Right. Although there's there's a lot of there's a lot of overlap too. Yeah. I, I would imagine. Um, so that's that's what I one aspect I, I find interesting about you know somebody who who achieves um, some some level and, and how they're able to uh, to connect it to what they've learned in the past. Okay, how about how about this? How much of organic chemistry do you still remember? <laughs> I could say not much. <laughs> I I can tell you the I knew there was a benzene ring. I I I remembered so little that I was embarrassed. To, Ask you if that was a benzene ring behind you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, on my whiteboard the last time we talked. Yeah, I, I erased that because I'm sure there was a Texas carbon in it. No, just kidding. I have a PhD in organic chemistry. <laughs> I know what the structure of benzene is. <laughs> there's not a lot of, uh, I, there's like in pharmacology, there's probably when you were going through, when I was going through pharmacology and medical school, there was probably a decent amount of uh, orgo related to it. But at this point, not really. So if you prescribe somebody like a beta blocker or something, then like it, you kind of know what it does. I mean, I, I will say that. So some of the stuff that comes up for me is like statins and beta blockers have different different like rates of adverse reactions if depending on their um hydrophobicity uh so if they're lipophilic one thing will happen if they're hydrophilic something else will happen so that's probably as far as it goes for me <laughs> but the, the rest of it is kind of like physiology kind of stuff what a beta mm -hmm. does what a angiotensin receptor blocker does that kind of stuff got it when you were studying uh was there ever a time when you wanted to give up and if so, how did you get past it? I don't, there was never a time where I wanted to give up because I think I had worked so hard to get to that point. And like my family was all excited that I was in medical school. And was how, about a, how about a super frustrating time? Yeah, I mean, we, like I tell you, that very, that first test, so my very first medical school test, I, I went into it like I went into a lot of prior tests. I was like, I'll be fine. And I like watched the Yankees Red Sox until three in the morning and then tried to cram two hours, three hours for a test, fell asleep. Then I woke up, I was like, I do fine on every test I've ever taken. And then I failed my first medical school test. So that was that was a very eye-opening experience. And I had to go meet with like the dean of the education, all that. And I was like, is everything okay at home? Is it too hard? Just like, no, everything is fine. Just I'll be fine. And I think that was where I kind of realized what I got myself into. And, you know, it's, it was going to be more work than I think I initially anticipated. Uh, I mean, there, there have been times, you know, going through training. Um, I mean, medical school is medical school. It's, you have a ton of people with you, you know, it's basically like, you're just learning still. When you get to residency and fellowship, you know, people's, other people's care are in your hands. So, you know, something bad happens to a patient or you work for, I would have like 30 plus hour shifts in a row or, you know, 
be a consult and the, you think the consults are stupid. Like those are frustrating days. You'll come home and you're like, I don't know why I bothered with this. Um, but you know, those, those feelings usually last for like a day. Cause like realistically, you're not going to back out at that point. And then the next day it comes on and it's better. I, I think every doctor has the days where you have a frustrating patient, something bad happens to a patient who you like or any patient, um, or you have like a frustrating interaction with a colleague, all those things happen. Um, and for, for that time period, it's really frustrating. Uh, I know my wife's cardiologist too. And I remember times she would come home and just throw her pager against the wall. Uh, but we all, we all got through it because the next day, honestly, the next day, usually you forget what happened the first day. I mean, medicine has a good way of, it's like pounding you into the ground one day. And then the next day you make like a cool diagnosis or you meet somebody really nice or, you know, some family thanks you for taking care of their mom. Mm -hmm. So I think it, that's typically the cycle in medicine, regardless of what specialty you're in. Um, Cause I have a lot of friends in other specialties and everybody, everybody says the same thing. Every, everybody has their moments. And then most of those moments are fairly uh, fleeting. Yeah. I can understand that as uh, even as an educator, I think, you know, someday you get like a grant rejected, or maybe you get a, you have to deal with a difficult student or a terrible like course evaluation. But then the next day you get like a, like an email from a student that tells you what your course meant to them. And I yeah. think it's, it doesn't come as fast and as furious, I think, as it does in, uh, in medicine, but I, I can half empathize with, with what you're saying. And I, I have the, we, cause I'm like a part, I'm essentially like an academic attending too. So I do some teaching and I, you get the same pros and cons of that. I mean, there are some people you work with who are fantastic. And there are others less so. Um, so I, I feel all the pluses and minuses as well. <laughs> so how many uh, trainees or supervisees do you have at any one point? So there, there are multiple fellows in the program. Um, at any given time, maybe one or two will be rotating through the hospital. Um, I'm, I'm pretty lucky to... Uh, be at Penn, the Penn fellows are phenomenal. Um, so I, I've had, I've had an awesome experience here with teaching. Um, and these are know, doctors that have, who have already been through yeah, residency. So they're, they're doctors who are in cardiology fellowship now. Um, and we'll usually rotate together through, um, whether it's like the ICU or on the floor and, you know, they get a lot of teaching from me. I sometimes get a lot of teaching from them. Um, so it, it's a nice back and forth. Uh, so it's, it's been awesome. I, I very much enjoy that aspect of things. You don't really get that in private practice. So I, I think there's, there's some distinguishing stuff there, depending on which mm -hmm. way you have a career. Do you find that you take, uh, is mentoring to you, something that you do naturally, um, like charismatically, or is there, are there specific, um, 
mentoring tools or mentoring approaches that you use that are more effective than, than others? I, I've always been kind of a, like a conversational person with that kind of stuff. I, when I do teaching in the hospital, it'll kind of be as a, you know, days go. I think almost every patient has something you could learn from them, whether it's like a dealing with a personality, dealing with a new diagnosis, that kind of stuff. Um, so it's easy to go along. I try not to keep things particularly serious. Like I, I used to do PowerPoint stuff and I've kind of gone away from that more recently. Um, I'll still draw stuff on paper and stuff like that, but I, I found that the PowerPoint thing would often get too formal and nobody talks and it was just me rambling on and on. Um, so now it's like, what do you guys want to talk about today? And just like make up some patient scenarios, that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a, I usually don't come prepared with something. Sometimes they'll, they'll want to talk about some esoteric thing. And I'll have to go read about it to pretend like I knew what it was beforehand. <laughs> <laughs> so they'll, they'll email you and they'll say like, I want to talk about this esoteric thing. And, and you're like, uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh. And exactly. Then, it's okay. like, yeah, yeah, no problem. And then I sit in my office for two hours reading about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, tell me about your research experience at MIT. This was after your residency, right? You did yeah, a... so I did. I did a year of research with um, Elzar Edelman over at MIT, who was fantastic. Um, we were doing some flow stuff with stents and how you have perturbations in flow, depending on if the stent is up against the wall of the vessel or not. Um, and then I was trying to do some uh, modeling of coronaries um, with some of the 3D software. Um, I've, I learned a ton during that year. Um, I, a lot of it was kind of fluid dynamic stuff that I think was helpful going forward into clinical practice. So when stents, when stuff goes wrong with a stent, a lot of times I could like understand why it happens. It doesn't happen often, but um, he was also an awesome mentor and just like getting through into fellowship and what to expect going on. And um, there's a guy I'd worked with who was a postdoc in Brazil, who was a cardiologist. It was also like, when you're not, when you're not in it, Right. I wasn't a cardiologist yet or even when I was in residency, like when you hear more stories from people who are at where you want to be, that also gets you like really excited. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they were telling me all these stories about stuff they did to take care of patients. Like, oh, that's so cool. I want to do that. Um, so, the, you know, that was also just like an exciting thing to know this is going to be my future. Did you have to do it between residency and fellowship? Did you have you, to do research? You don't have to do research between my, my wife and I were a year apart. So I needed to find something to do for a, a gap year. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, all the research I had done was engineering related. Um, that's the kind of stuff I like to do. So he was doing stuff that was both kind of engineering slash clinical um, in nature. So it kind of fit everything I wanted to do. I don't do any research now, but it was a good time. (laughs) (laughs) Do you, do you ever work with, uh, with companies like instrument makers, device makers, or, or consult with engineers in any uh, capacity? I 
still, I mean, I'll, I'll meet sometimes. So I do, um, there are these structural cardiology cases now where we'll do, we'll like fix valves or put stuff in the heart through the leg. Um, and I'll, I do the imaging for that. So sometimes when we're doing that kind of stuff, engineers from the company will come out particularly at the beginning of the process of starting the procedure at the hospital. So I'll, I'll meet them there and chit chat about the device and how they came up with it and that kind of stuff. But as far as giving my input into anything, no, there's, there's some people, there are probably a lot of people kind of do that. Um, but I am not one of them. Mm-hmm. I, I thought about it. I, I think it's, uh, it becomes like a, a time thing. You have X amount of hours in the day and mo- at most places you're not going to get like, this is your consulting time. You got to carve that out on your own. Um, so it was just too complicated. Like I, yeah. I do my clinical job and then come home and hang out with my kids. <laughs> yeah, of course. I totally, totally understand. I'm, I'm looking for ways where we can connect, uh, your engineering background to our engineering uh, student audience. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Oh, it's, oh, it's, it's no, it's no problem. I only have a few more minutes. <laughs> anyway <laughs> sorry um so are there are there any particular cardiovascular diseases that uh i don't know if excited is the right word but like when one comes in you're like i got this like i'm <laughs> i'm excited to treat this or like do you have any I, like what are your superpowers in terms of <laughs> i so i'm obviously biased but i think all of cardiology is just incredibly cool and interesting. Um, and you know, I think the difference in cardiology relates to uh, compared to some other specialties is people will come in kind of high acuity. Um, so they'll be super, super sick. And if you, you know, if you play the right cards, they get better pretty quickly. Um, or, or they don't. (laughs) So, uh, so cardiogenic shock is, you know, it, to this day, it's like a 50% mortality rate. Uh, what describe that? What, what's the Cardi- cardiogenic shock is basically for, because of your heart, you're not perfusing blood to the rest of your organs. So the effectively the blood coming out of your heart isn't enough to perfuse. Um, and you know, those patients come in like on fire, sick a lot of times. And, you know, if you think through the physiology and a lot of it is engineering based, right? So it's basically your cardiac output is dependent on your systemic vascular resistance. And if you're able to, you know, basically drop your SVR, your resistance, your cardiac output will go up and, and everything gets better. So you, how you, how you go about that, there are a lot of different ways. That's effectively what you're doing. Um, and when it works, it's like magic. <laughs> so like you get these numbers and you're like, oh, I know what I have to do is have to lower the resistance here. Flow will go up and I win. <laughs> uh, how do you, how do you do that? Like, how do you change the resistance? And so there are, there are medications that'll, that'll lower the resistance that the heart's facing to get blood out. Um, and that kind of decongests. So as the blood stops 
as a, effectively as the blood stops squeezing, as the heart stops squeezing well, the pressures get really high in the heart. And then that backs up fluid into the lungs. So a combination of dropping your resistance beyond the heart and decongesting all that fluid via diuretics like Lasix. So you, both those things will lower the pressures in the chambers of the heart. And that'll also get things to get moving, um, get their blood pressure up and everything starts getting better. It's really like a, a pressure problem, a resistance thing. And it all just like works out beautifully when it works. Um, it's a, it, they're the sickest cardiology patients and they're probably like the most uh, engineering physiology of all of them. You know, like heart attack, a lot of heart attack patients, they have a, they have a block that you open the block and then that's, they get better. Um, you know, some of those people go into cardiogenic shock. Um, electrical patients, you kind of deal with the electrical problem, but I, the cardiogenic shock people, I think are the most, the most interesting and most rewarding when you're able to get them out of the fire. Is the, is a, uh, is a, a blockage usually the cause of that? And what's the difference between cardiogenic? Yeah. Yeah. It's probably the most common blockage. The most common cause of cardiogenic shock is probably post heart attack. Um, but people could have it. They could have a low squeeze related to a prior heart attack and whatever reason they go into it. Um, then, and the other cool thing about it is in the last, I don't know, maybe 15, 20 years, people have started developing a lot of devices, try to, help with that. Um, and any, any, anytime there's a cardiology device, there's, it's usually pretty cool. So there's intra-aortic balloon pump, which is kind of old now, but it'll go in your aorta and will blow up the balloon, um, when your heart is in diastole and then basically shove blood up your aorta into your coronary arteries. And then it'll pull the balloon down when your heart's in systole. And then suck blood out of the heart. Um, and then there's an impella device now where they'll go in through the aorta and it has this little Archimedes screw at the end. It'll just like spin up and pull blood out and spit it into your aorta if your heart can't do it on its own. Um, and now there's uh, ventricular assist devices where they basically put in a pump into the heart and it'll pull blood out of the bottom of the heart and stick it into the top of the heart kind of into the aorta. So, you know, all these devices are, they're all like they're engineering marbles. Um, Yeah. No kidding. So I I think that's also the, one of the really cool things about being, being in cardiology. I don't think most of the other, probably in some of the surgical subspecialties, there's a lot of stuff. Um, But in cardiology, I think it's, it's a big, the whole cardiogenic shock thing is a, big area for companies to try to put resources to and develop new cool stuff. How is it different from congestive heart failure? So it's sort of this, there's similar. So people with congestive heart failure, if it gets bad enough, can wind up in cardiogenic shock. So congestive heart failure effectively means that the pressures in your heart are too high. So fluid is going sort of backwards into your lungs. And then you get that better by most of the time giving people diuretic and you 
pee out salt and that'll lower the pressures in the chambers of your heart. Um, the people who have a low squeeze causing congestive heart failure, they're the ones that tend to benefit from uh, lowering their resistance and because their heart's kind of poopy to begin with. So if you have a not so great heart squeezing against the high resistance, everything goes downhill. So you kind of try to reduce the amount of work on the heart by lowering their resistance and people have a low squeeze. People who don't have a low squeeze, that doesn't really apply, but. Yeah. One last technical question. Um, so as somebody like me, who's interested in the mechanical properties of materials, um, as well as stress and psychogenic diseases, um, in what ways do, in what ways does stress and anxiety, um, manifest clinically to a cardiologist and how do you, how do you work with a patient whose, whose cardiovascular issues of our like psychological origin? So it's kind of interesting. There's, there's a thing called a stress cardiomyopathy and it's, it's like called broken heart syndrome. So the classic thing is somebody will have a very stressful event and people don't really know how it works. I think the, one of the more accepted ways is that the sympathetic innervation to the heart just kind of spazzes out. Um, and then the heart will, part of the heart won't squeeze well. Um, and, you know, you put those patients on medication for congestive heart failure and it tends to get better within two weeks or so. Um, but it, it's, it's very interesting because the, the entire inciting thing can be somebody got into an argument somebody's family member died. I had somebody watching the Republican National Convention and that <laughs> caused it. Um, so I think in its purest form, you can have that. Um, and there are people who, I, I, you know, I, I don't know how much like true pathology happens with, with like anxiety, depression, that kind of stuff, but people can have, they could feel symptoms um, I have a lot of patients who get palpitations and feel like their heart's fluttering, you know, whether when we do all this stuff with the heart monitor, whether we find something, I think that's more often than not, we don't, but they still have these symptoms. So yeah. however, however, those symptoms are happening, you know, I don't know, but it's clearly something mentally related because there's nothing happening as far as the heart's electrical system goes in those people, but they sure feel like they're heart skipping. Right. I don't, I don't have an answer for that. One. Yeah. Um, got it. Uh, all right. So as a professor, we sometimes check out our, uh, our course review scores, right? Like our ratings. And, um, I had this question. So originally, uh, your wife, um, Ashley Brogan, who's also a cardiologist at Penn was going to be on here, but she had to, uh, <laughs> take care of childcare uh, duties <laughs> because she'll we're be at home right now. I will we'll switch roles. <laughs> we'll she'll be back. Um, so I was, I was going to mention that on the Penn medicine website, Ashley has a 4.9 rating out of five 
and you only have a 4.7 out of five, which is a fantastic rating. But I'm wondering if you have an explanation for that. Where are those, what are those two tenths all about? <laughs> I, I think my, my wife is an overall fantastic cardiologist. I, I think she, she does a much better job, I think, than I do about chit-chatting about stuff that isn't particularly relevant to people's hearts than I do. <laughs> <laughs> like there, there was one time she was like telling me about somebody who had a playing some basketball game. And I was looking for a game to play. I was like, Ashley, why are you talking about where they play basketball? So like, oh, I just found it interesting. Like, Oh, and I, I think people, people like that a lot. And it also helps that she, she is, she is like cardiology savant. She's like, she's one of those people who can quote papers and tell you everything about every topic in cardiology. Um, so I've, I've ridden her coattails to this. <laughs> but, but, but you have told me though, that your bedside manner is, is, um, is calming to some type of people who <laughs> come in totally freaked out about their condition and you just tell them like, statistically, this is nothing. Don't want to worry about yeah, it. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I don't think it's helpful for somebody who's a cardiologist at a, a quaternary care hospital. You know, we, we see the sickest of the sick. And I, you know, if I were that patient, I wouldn't want somebody coming in panicking about what to do. I don't think that gives much of an aura of confidence. Um, you know, whether, whether people like when I joke around when they're in cardiogenic shock, you know, to keep the mood light when, you know, they're sick, you know, that's debatable. Some people, some people like it. Some people don't, um, you know, I, I, I can't please every patient that walks in the door. I see uh, when I'm in clinic, I probably see 20 patients a day. And in the hospital, it could be like 20 something patients a day. Not every one of those are going to be happy with every decision I make. But I think at the end of the day, you know, I, I know that I'm taking as good care of them as any great cardiologist would not that I'm saying I'm great as I came out of my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I'm, I'm confident what I can do, right? I, I think I'm a very good cardiologist. Um, and I think people's personality and medicine are all different. Uh, my wife is also a fantastic cardiologist, but she, she enjoys hearing about every aspect of somebody's life in a 30-minute office visit. You know, I, I try to focus on the cardiology stuff because... You know, in that short amount of time, I don't, you know, I debatable how pertinent somebody's basketball game is. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I would, uh, I would want either one of you as my <laughs> cardiologist. If, if I, I found myself in us any patient, one of us sees basically has two cardiologists. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's a, it's a real bargain. <laughs> Well, since I have a, a history of long cardiac workups, um, next time I'm in uh, Pennsylvania and uh, experience some kind of uh, crisis, I will tell the, the uh, EMT where to take me. <laughs> Appreciate it. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Roy, for doing this. Um, good luck with everything. With and uh, 
Yeah, likewise. Take care. Take care, man. Thanks for listening to Ideas in STEM Ed, a production of the Idea Engineering Student Center in the Jacobs School of Engineering at UC San Diego. This episode was edited and engineered by Sky Lee with theme music written and performed by John Viviani. Title art was created by Caitlin Wong. Special thanks to Sarah Eckerd for guest booking and marketing. The Idea Center works to promote community, success, and inclusion at all levels. To reach us for guest suggestions and other feedback, please send an email to ideadirector at eng.ucsd.edu. And to learn more about our programs, visit jacobschool.ucsd.edu front slash idea. As a final note, the views expressed by me or the guests do not necessarily reflect those of the Idea Center, the Jacobs School of Engineering, or UC San Diego. See you next time.